Father, we thank you that you have uh, spoken, communicated yourself to us um, through, your, through, through the prophets, through uh, the scriptures. But you've, you've communicated yourself, yourself most powerfully through the word made flesh, Jesus. And here we are at the pinnacle of that work. The glory of Christ is what he's been calling it. His death, his crucifixion. And so we find ourselves swimming in deep waters, and we pray that your spirit would help us to, uh, to stay afloat. Actually, maybe not even stay afloat, to get sort of swallowed up in them and uh, to be transformed more into the image of Christ. This message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we pray that its power, the power of the gospel, would be unleashed in our midst this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the story, The Emperor's New Clothes. a familiar story, you probably know it, but just a quick recap, maybe for those who, who don't know. There's this emperor, he's the king of the land, and he loves clothes. And there are a couple of swindlers that see an opportunity. They come in and they say that they are master weavers and they can weave the best clothes imaginable. And so they, uh, they begin weaving, but, but there's a catch to their clothing. It's a little unique because fools can't see the clothes that they weave. And so they begin to weave, and nobody sees anything that they're weaving. Uh, and, but everybody, nobody wants to be a fool, right? So everybody's like, oh, that, yeah, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful garment that you've weaved. And the emperor puts the clothes on. Oh, king, you, you look good. You, let's get you, let's parade you through the city so they can see you in those clothes. And so the king walks and the people are like, oh, the king, look at him. And then the little child says, he doesn't have any clothes on. And, you know, the whole, the whole thing falls apart. The charade falls down. It breaks down. Christianity, and we say this a lot, is primarily about what's been done not about what we do. It's about fundamentally what has been done, not about what we do. All the other religions are fundamentally about what, what, what the practitioner does. We follow rules, we follow rituals, we follow practices, we follow a set of teaching. It's what we do. That's what it's primarily about. And, and, and other religions ask us to put on practices and teaching like clothes that we wear. And we can actually begin to hide behind these kinds of things. It doesn't have to be other religions. It could be, it could, although religion is a great way for people to hide, it could be all sorts of practices. It could be, um, it could even be Christian practices. We can put on Christian practices as, as things to kind of cover our sense of nakedness. It may be achievement. But whatever it is, there, there's a lot of ways in which we dress up ourselves in clothes. We're kind of like the emperor. We love clothes. We love our clothes. Now, it may actually be clothes. We may hide behind the clothes that we wear, the brands that we wear, the latest fashion, the latest style. That may be kind of something that really captures us. But it doesn't have to be literal clothes. It could be, it could be many things that we, that we put on to cover our spiritual nakedness and bankruptcy. We hide from others. We hide from God, and we even hide from ourselves with the things that we put on. Maybe it's the earbuds we put in to distract ourselves. 
We're just kind of just keep, we scroll on. We take up our devices and we scroll to kind of distract ourselves from ourselves. It's like a, so it's a way of like clothing ourselves in our own distraction. It could be the religious may clothe themselves in rules. The non-religious clothe themselves in their freedom. The successful clothe themselves in achievement. Many of us clothe ourselves in, in various forms of entertainment. Maybe we clothe ourselves in family and how well we care for kids. My child's an honor roll student. I'm a good parent. Maybe, maybe it's literal clothes, like I said. But whatever the case is, we're putting on, we, we constantly put on this sense of acceptance and righteousness and approval. And it makes sense that we as humans would want to do this, to clothe ourselves in this way, because we've fallen from our original righteousness, the Bible says. We've fallen from our communion with God. Humanity is naked and ashamed. Adam and Eve were hiding behind fig leaves and hiding behind bushes. And Christianity says, stop the hiding. Stop putting on all of these clothes. Stop with the fig leaves. Stop with hiding in the bushes, Adam and Eve. Christianity is about a work that God has done. It's not about how we clothe ourselves. It's about what God has done. And here we are. We're making our way through the pinnacle, the peak of this whole scripture, the crucifixion, Christ crucified. It's the pinnacle. It's the summit of all of the scriptures. All of the Old Testament is moving to this, and all of the New Testament moves from it. All of human history is moving to this point, and all of the future is moving from this point of the crucifixion. And so here we are at the, at the summit. And when you're at the top of a mountain, you see things. We're going to see some things up here. We're going to see um, what exactly this work of Christ does for us. I think we're going to see something, I, I pray and hope, that gives us deep rest. Because we need that, don't we? Two points this morning. The first is a game of chance. And then the second is the sovereign plan of God. A game of chance and the sovereign plan of God. So first, the game of chance. Now remember, uh, in this section of scripture that we're in, Jesus has just been uh, put upon the cross. He's, he's hanging there. He's dying a slow death by suffocation as he hangs and he pushes himself up to gain, to gain oxygen, and then out of exhaustion falls back and then is just going through this process of breathing with incredible strain. And while that's happening, verse 23, soldiers took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. See, the, the executioners here, there appear to be four of them, they, get, they had dibs on the executed's clothing. And so they divide his garments, probably his sandals, his head covering, his outer garment, like his coat, his sash, is probably the four things. And the crucified person was stripped naked. It was a way to further the shame of the crucifixion, um, to, to further the embarrassment. And now those clothes of Christ are being claimed by the soldiers. One commentator says he's not just being been stripped legally, but he's literally been stripped. But there's one piece of clothing that's a little bit different than the others. Look at verse 23 again. 
There was also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now the tunic was like the base layer. It wasn't, it wasn't underwear. It was like, it was like the base layer. It was what was against the skin. And it's, 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 it's one piece of clothes. There's no seam. So there's no way to break it up. To break it is to destroy it. So what are these four men? They can't take it apart. It's like ripping a dollar in four pieces. It's no good. The garment's no good. So they, they cast lots to see. They, they play a game of chance. Look at verse 24. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. They're literally rolling the dice at the foot of the cross. And how fitting. This act speaks volumes, doesn't it? Imagine the disciples, or at least those who remain. John, to to our knowledge, is the only one that's still there. Um, Jesus' mother, watching these men play a game over the belongings of their Lord as he hangs above them naked and dying. And you can imagine them wondering, God, are you there? Is there a God? What, what, was, all, what was all of that that Jesus spoke of? What was the healing, the miracles, the food, the feeding? What, was that real? Because this is a mess. This is not how it's supposed to be. They're probably thinking themselves, isn't life just one big game of crapshoot? Is this gross injustice of our Lord just a run of really bad luck for Christ? I mean, it should be Barabbas up there. He's the guilty one. And here's this innocent man Dying this horrible death. It's life, right? It's, life is one big cosmic crapshoot. And you just hope that you're lucky. One 20th century thinker, Bertrand Russell, said this in the early 20th century. Man is the product of random causes. His origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his love, his beliefs, they're all the outcome of the accidental collocations of atoms. It's all just random. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, it's destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must be buried inevitably beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. And then he says this, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul be safely built. Let me paraphrase. Everything's an accident. Everything's kind of a disaster waiting to happen. And the only way you can have comfort in this life and the next, life and death, this is the Heidelberg Catechism question one, as answered by Bertrand Russell. What is your only comfort in life and death? Russell says this, that it's all an accident, and you got to come to terms with that. Because if you don't, you'll be disappointed. It's all just big, one big cosmic crapshoot. So, 
Russell and, and kind of our own modern age would say, go out. There is no meaning. So go out and make your own meaning. Doesn't have to be that way. So make your own meaning. Go captain your own ship. Take command of your life. Drive your own destiny. Blaze your own trail. And those who take that pursuit the furthest and most extreme are the most praiseworthy in our own kind of culture and day. And it feel it, it, it feels plausible, doesn't it, at times, especially in the midst of suffering, that there is no meaning. But John is saying, not so fast. John is an eyewitness to this. John is there watching them play this game at the feet of his Lord. And here John is writing under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us, not so fast. John is giving us clues. He understands that this looks like a chaotic mess. It looks like a miscarriage of justice, and it actually is. But there's actually a sovereign design that's governing, hovering over and under it. And that brings us to our second point, the sovereign plan of God. What looks like a crapshoot on the ground is actually God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 24. John says, what the soldiers are doing was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. For my clothes, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. As we approach, have been approaching this death of Christ, John has been giving us Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference. He's been escalating the references to the Old Testament because he wants us to know this is not an accident. It's not a, it's not, it's not a mistake. It's not, life is not a cosmic crapshoot. There is an author who is orchestrating events according to the counsel of his holy will. And this is the, the unfolding pinnacle of that work in creation, unfolding before us. And John here references Psalm 22, which was written a thousand years before Jesus. This is no accident, John is saying. And look at verse 24 again. The soldiers did these things. Just as Psalm 22 said, a thousand years before. It's not, life is not a game of Yahtzee, John is saying. But it is a carefully architected story. So what, is it, what, what does the story mean? What, is, what, is, what do these verses here mean for us? Well, in order to answer that, we need to recall again the significance of clothes in the Bible. We spoke, we spoke earlier of Adam and Eve being, uh, well, at, at creation, they were naked and unashamed. And sin awakened them to their shame, something that they had not previously known. And as we said, they hid under, behind fig leaves, they hid behind bushes. But remember what God does as, he, as they exit the garden, his presence? He gives them clothes. He gives them skins. But, as we see, they remain spiritually naked and ashamed, as we all do. And this, this theme of clothing is really big in the scriptures. Um, I think of the Joseph story. It plays, plays out really big in Joseph's story. Remember Joseph? Remember uh, the clothing that he received from his father? It meant, it meant a lot. That cloak, I mean, that, that, that cloak said, you know, he put that on and he felt like a million bucks and he acted like he felt like a million bucks before his brothers. But that, that cloak meant, daddy loves you. 
your, your, your daddy's special one. And he sort of strutted with quite a bit of arrogance, and his brothers didn't like it one bit. And what did they do? They stripped him of that cloak, remember? And they sold him off as a slave. They bloodied the cloak up, and they passed it off to his father as evidence of his death. Meanwhile, Joseph stripped and naked, uh, literally, but also like figuratively, because now he's no longer the top dog in the family. He's now a slave in Egypt. And remember what happens when he is in Potiphar's house? Potiphar's wife makes an advance on him, and he flees. And what happens? She pulls his cloak off. And again, he keeps losing his clothes, and his clothes keep getting, being used against him. He, he raped me. See, this is his cloak. And he ran off, and she screams. And now he's, he's even further down, spiraling downward. And now he's in prison, wrongfully accused. And then after decades of being in prison through the providence of God, he's lifted up. He's exalted. He interprets the Pharaoh's dream. The Pharaoh is blown away by Joseph's interpretation, also blown away at Joseph's plan for dealing with the famine that the dream says is going to come. And look in Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 41, Pharaoh says to Joseph, Joseph, I have set you over all the land. And Pharaoh, listen to what Pharaoh does. What does he do? Pharaoh clothes him. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen, the king's clothes. And he put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him all before, in, within Egypt. All the people of Egypt bow before this man. He was, Joseph was, he was over the land. He was a king, a prime minister, basically, to rule the land and administer justice to the world and salvation through the famine to the world. And he had the clothes to prove it. He wore the Pharaoh's clothes to back it up. Now, as I see it, this story is a little picture of what God is doing. One of the major themes running through the scriptures. Because the fact is, we put on all kinds of clothes. Um, Joseph's clothes, clothes is the kind of clothes we like to wear. Clothes that say, you're accepted, you're good, you're approved. That's what that garment said, his dad's blank, uh, cloak said. We put on all kinds. Bob Thune and Will Walker give some good examples of the kinds of clothes we put on. The kinds of righteousness that we clothe ourselves in. I'm going to read some of those. There's job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. There's family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I am more godly than parents who can't control their kids. There's theological righteousness. I have good theology, and so God prefers me over those who have bad theology. There's intellectual righteousness. I am better read, I'm more articulate, I'm more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me a superior Christian or superior person. There's schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management. I'm always at places on time, five minutes early, which makes me more mature than others. There's flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed, I always make time for others. I'm not in a hurry. Shame on those who don't make time for others. 
There's mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everyone else should. There's legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, I don't smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. That's so the thinking goes. There's financial righteousness. I manage money wisely and I stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. There's political righteousness. I vote for the right candidate. And if you love God, you will too. There's tolerance righteousness. I am open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. But you see all these, I mean, we, there are probably many other examples we could give, but these are, these are the kinds of things we clothe ourselves in. We clothe ourselves in. The Jewish leadership and Pilate also are clothed. The powers of the world are clothed. The Jewish leadership and the priests have clothed themselves in their self-righteousness. They're grandstanding throughout all of this. But here's the thing. All of Jewish faith and history is moving to a point, and they, they miss the point, the whole point of it all. And they pin him to a tree, Jesus. And Pilate, he believes Jesus is innocent. But for fear of his job loss or the crowds or mutiny in his midst as governor, for fear, he crucifies Jesus. And he is expo- he's stripped. The Jewish crowds are stripped for their self-righteous anger over the course of these events. Pilate is stripped as weak and powerless. They're all stripped. And we, we learn by the end of it, the emperor has no clothes. They don't have any clothes. They don't have any leg to stand on. And if we're honest, we realize that we don't have any clothes. We who, you know, we think we rule our lives we, little emperors of our little kingdom. We don't have any clothes. None of those things that I mentioned really clothe you sufficiently. You always are kind of covering yourself with, those, with that approach. You feel either way better than everybody else, as Joseph did when he had the coat, or you feel way worse if you're not doing well in that. It's this roller coaster of inferiority, superiority. It's not a recipe for, for love and community. So the emperor here in this passage has no clothes the Jewish leadership, Pilate. But what about Christ? He doesn't have clothes either. In fact, the soldiers are going through his clothes like bandits. And that's right. He has no clothes because he's giving his clothes to you and to me. That's what's happening right here. Listen to what John Calvin says regarding this passage. Christ was stripped of his garments so that he might clothe us with righteousness, his righteousness. Not flexibility righteousness, not job righteousness, not family righteousness, not anything that we could whip up, but his perfect righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men, Calvin says, so that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. John is saying profound human problem of spiritual nakedness is being resolved as Christ who is stripped of his righteousness 
in his glory, in his exaltation, is pushing those things to us. He's taking, he's taking what we deserve so that we can get his righteousness, our condemnation, and we get his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for how you have been relentless in your pursuit of your people from before the foundation of the earth, through the call of Abraham, through the work of the prophets, through all the failures of your people. Uh, You were bringing about uh, the God-man, Jesus. And here he is pursuing uh, his glory, is what he calls it. Um, His glory, he's pursuing us, pouring out his love for us, and he's being stripped so that we might be clothed in his righteousness, and we thank you for that. We pray, we all all agree with that point. Uh, If we was on a multiple choice test, we could probably answer it correctly, but we confess our hearts are so far from operating out of it. So we pray that you would drop these truths that may reside in our minds down to our hearts so that we can more, more faithfully live from them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.